Rocket Molly Syndicate. Written by John Taylor. Read by Robin Dahlberg. Chicago in the 1930s. Gangsters and coppers are all playing for big stakes. Going after the biggest is Rocket Molly and her crew of gorgeous dames, each a mistress of the heist. But when they blast their way out and take flight, their adventure is only beginning. Chicago, May 19, 1931. High heels clicking on fine marble announce the entrance of five gorgeous dames marching in lockstep. Each dame had an oversized handbag on her right elbow and a violin case in her left hand, and sported a poker face that cut the air like a switchblade. The dames brushed past the coat room like an ex-lover, and the sultry air in the grand ballroom turned icy, getting colder with each step. Revelers suddenly became self-conscious of the constellation of jewelry that glistened from their wrists and necks, outshining the night sky. The band ground to a halt, and Christian Axworth's eyes narrowed on the showstoppers. He knew trouble when he saw it, but this was his hotel, and all the trouble in Chicago was supposed to be on his payroll, especially tonight for the exhibit's unveiling. Yet there they were, dressed to the nines, all in black like a funeral procession. Christian bit down on his cigarette holder furiously and continued to eye them with contempt. Sharp heels and dark nylons greeted his stare with custom-tailored black skirts to the knee and business jackets. Each wore chrome-tinted aviator's goggles under the mesh veils of their broad, dark hats and lipstick so blood-red it made Christian's pulse race. But his attention was fixed on the devices they wore on their backs. Thick leather straps and belts supported what looked like a cross between an engine and an artillery shell. Multiple exhaust vents and rudders lined the sides, and the devices seemed to be wired to wristwatches the dames wore over their leather gloves. The partygoers noticed them, too, and shuddered under their furs and tuxedos. The dames moved with a purpose toward the bar, silent as death, and Christian flicked an alarm switch under his table. These gatecrashers may have been dressed for a funeral, but it damn well wasn't going to be his. The five dames eyed the bartender, and he began to sweat like a bootlegger on death row. Without a word, all five released the catch on their violin cases, flipped out tommy guns, and opened fire. A deafening volley of shots echoed in the vaulted, stained-glass ceiling of the ballroom, followed by the screams of the crowd as the bartender went down in a spray of cheap blood and expensive crystal. The lead dame, a white-haired woman with a pale complexion, fired to her left and shattered the ice sculpture that had been the centerpiece of the room and sent the band ducking for cover. The dames turned to the rest of the ballroom but kept their silence. They didn't need words. A tommy gun can say, your money or your life, in any language. They began to work the room and garlands of diamonds and pearls fell at their feet like roses for a triumphant matador. Christian ground his teeth and furrowed his brow, fighting to keep silent. Jewel by jewel, their handbags swelled with a fortune in the world's choicest gems until only the grand prize, the reason for the evening's festivities, remained. The Rosenkrunz diamond, set with gold and sapphires, gleamed like the sun in its display case in front of Christian, its new owner. The leader of the gang shattered the glass with the butt of her gun and lifted the massive gem off its velvet cushion. 
Christian snarled at her when she casually dropped the world's most precious gem in her handbag and triggered an alarm that left most of the guests screaming. Still the dame's sphinx-like silence held, their faces showing no trace of emotion. That maddened Christian even more. They'd stolen his wealth, his thunder, his pride, yet showed no satisfaction, like his priceless gem was just another trinket to pawn. He was just another job to them. Christian Axworth could deal with being hated or rejected, but he refused to be ordinary. He bit into his cigarette holder until it snapped, waiting for the alarm to be answered. The gang kept their cool despite the racket. Their silent revel seemed unbreakable until another clatter of footsteps filled the ballroom with fleeting hope. Ten police officers burst in the door with guns drawn and badges gleaming. The five dames ignored their cries of freeze and drop it like bad advice. A Cheshire cat grin spread across their faces, the first trace of emotion from any of them, and they pointed their guns up at the stained glass skylight. Hit it, girls, the dame in charge yelled, and they hit a button on their watches. There was a deafening roar as their backpacks rocketed to life and sent the dames rushing skyward like fireworks. They fired in unison at the stained glass dome of the ceiling, unleashing a storm of hot lead and covering the ballroom with a rain of shattered Tiffany glass. Camera flash bulbs and screaming guests drown out gunshots as the ground-bound police watched them rush through the shattered skylight toward a zeppelin flying overhead. Before vanishing out of sight, the lead dame tossed her hat down and blew Christian Axworth a kiss as it landed. Sullenly, Christian cast a glance at the hat. On the inside of the brim, a calling card was written. Courtesy of Rocket Molly, it read in elegant silver cursive letters. New York City, June 18, 1931. So, Miss Maxwell, may I call you Millicent? Miles Donovan yelled to the woman in the pilot seat of the K-5 fleet biplane, struggling to keep his press pass in place while he scribbled on his notepad. It's a very refined-sounding name for an independent contractor. I've told you twice to call me Millie, she replied without taking her eyes off the horizon. And we're mercenaries. Just come out and say it. The only refined thing about me is the oil in my plane's engine. Millie, then, Miles began again. What contract brings you and your siblings here today? He asked, eyeing the second plane, another K-5 that had three occupants, with one daredevil standing on the upper wing in a harness. The lettering on their sides read, Maxwell and Sunberg's Flying Circus, in gaudy but badly faded colors. They were armed with front-mounted machine guns and rear-facing harpoon cannons that made them look as formidable as any warplane. Doyle and O'Brien's dinosaur carnival had four of their laboratory-grown pterodactyls escape, Millie said over her shoulder, including Gusto the Magnificent, their alpha male. He carried off their tightrope walker during a show in the Bronx and is roosting with three others atop the Empire State Building. The New York Fire Department hired me to get her back. Is this an unusual errand for you, Millie? I've flown stranger assignments, she replied, but this one will probably be one I tell the grandkids about someday. She hated having the reporter along, but his riding along was part of the deal, and a mercenary pilot couldn't be too choosy on contracts, not with the depression going full steam and the fear act closing every circus in sight. Millie felt the patched knee of her flight suit break a stitch. She sighed and shot a quick glance at her employer's promissory note, which was taped to her instrument panel, her leather pilot's jacket creaking softly as she did. Millie to Cecilia, 
she said into her radio handset. Our target is in range. Aim for Gusto first and prepare to attack. The early evening skies of New York City were filled with police and fire department airships flashing their warning colors to air traffic over the Empire State Building, diverting taxi zeppelins and autogyros wildly away from the aerial blockade. The symphony of air raid sirens was answered by cries of primal defiance from the four pterodactyls that perched on the zeppelin mast. The largest of them perched at the pinnacle, wrapped in a shredded banner that read, Gusto the Magnificent, Miracle of Science. In his once majestic talons, Gusto clenched a shapely blonde woman spilling out of a torn acrobat's costume. She struggled for her freedom, her cheap eyeliner ruined by hours of tears and her voice hoarse from screaming. Gusto was indifferent to her cries, cawing and snapping at the circus trainers and reporters at the base of the mast. He screeched at their flashbulbs, challenging the 20th century to cage him. Roger that, Millie, came the radioed reply. Miles Donovan jumped at the clanking sound of something locking into place under a seat and saw a cannon, built like a six-shot revolver, drop out of the bottom of the other plane, matching Millie's. What are those? he asked nervously. Net launchers, Millie replied. You'd be surprised how often they get used. I take it you've done this before, Millie. Our family gets a lot of trap and transport jobs. Now just pipe down and take notes, Mr. Donovan, Millie replied, her frustration mounting. Cecilia's plane rushed into its pass at the Empire State Building and fired the net launcher. The net flew fast and curved low, wrapping the lowest pterodactyl in a squawking bundle. It screeched madly, sending the others flying in a frenzy toward Midtown with the acrobat still in Gusto's talons. Stay on him, Cecilia! Millie yelled into her radio. Her heart sank. Of all the times for a botched job, it would have to be the time there was a reporter flying with her. She was not pleased at this turn of events, and having Miles instead of her brother Frank in the gunner's seat wasn't helping. But Millie didn't have time to dwell on it, not when a woman's life and her paycheck were on the line. The other plane followed in pursuit, and Millie turned to Miles Donovan. Are you buckled in? She asked. Miles nodded yes. Then put away your notepad, cause this is gonna be a little rough. Millie banked into a barrel roll and fired at Gusto with her machine gun while upside down, sending him into a sharp left toward the aerial barricade and miles into a near panic at the sight of the Chrysler building looming ahead. There, Zeppelins redirected from the barricade were moored in a circle. Gusto swooped below one, a dingy yellow air taxi, and Millie followed. Gusto released his grip on the acrobat with one talon and slashed the Zeppelin's envelope. He screeched with malice as Millie fired on him again. There was a spark, and Millie saw, to her chagrin, the taxi pilot bailing out. His Zeppelin's hydrogen-filled envelope burst into flame and fell to the street as Gusto flew around it. Miles screamed in terror, and Millie pulled up sharply from below the flaming wreck, barely clearing it as the three pterodactyls rushed toward Midtown. NYPD to Maxwell 1. Millie's radio crackled. Cease fire. I repeat, cease fire. Are they serious? Millie yelled at Miles. Have you ever tried to steer a dactyl into a trap without live fire? Can't say I have, he croaked in a seasick tone. Millie banked hard and slowed down to the other two dactyls as her siblings pulled ahead. She dropped altitude and nudged the closest one with her wingtip. With a squawk, it dived between buildings and skimmed the side of the flatiron building. Millie followed tight on its tail, her wheels grazing the building's side. 
she winced and tried to remain airborne. The pterodactyl and her plane had comparable wingspans, but the dactyl was far more agile than her rigid biplane. As the dactyl reached the edge of the building, Millie fired her net launcher and ensnared it. It fell for a moment, then was caught by the harpoon from the other plane and flung gently to the street in a thrashing bundle. A satisfied grin came to Millie's face. Did you see that? She yelled over her shoulder at Miles Donovan. I could see my office from there, he replied weakly. Millie was getting her confidence back and she let out the throttle, speeding up and banking wide opposite Cecilia's plane. Their paths crossed around the next dactyl, then each looped upside down and Millie fired her net launcher. She snared her target, which was instantly harpooned by Cecilia's gunner, and towed to street level where a fearful mob ducked, then cheered as the captive dactyl landed with a soft thud. Second one down at Broadway and Fifth, Millie said triumphantly. On to the main event. Millie opened up the throttle and charged after Gusto, who weaved maddeningly in her sights, still screeching in defiance at her. Millie to Cecilia! She barked into the radio in an exasperated tone. Cecilia, the cops said we can't shoot them down. New plan. I want you to get wingtip to wingtip with me and trade places with Frank up on top. But I'm the better pilot! Cecilia protested. I know you are. Millie radioed to her, rolling her eyes. I need you to fly my plane while I go after the acrobat. No way walking after her, Millie? Cecilia asked. There's no way around it. I can't risk dropping her in the net. Millie replied as the other plane pulled parallel with hers. Millie's brother dropped into the cockpit of the other plane, and Millie released her seat restraint, then stood up and pulled a Mauser 45 ACP pistol from her belt. What are you doing? Miles cried. Changing pilots. Millie replied over her shoulder, Meet my sister Cecilia. A teenage girl in oil-stained mechanics overalls and a pilot's cap with goggles that seemed much too large dropped into the pilot seat and took the throttle. You're flying the plane, but you're just a kid! Miles stammered in alarm. I'm not a child anymore! Cecilia spat defensively. I'm 17 and I'm already a better pilot than Mom was. You watch what you say about Mom, you hear? Millie snapped back, and catch up to that dactyl! Cecilia sped up, and Millie hooked her belt onto the cable that spanned her upper wing. Her eyes narrowed behind her goggles, and she took the safety off her pistol. Come on, she thought. Just one clean shot. Millie braced herself as Cecilia swooped so near the dactyl that she could hear the acrobat scream. Millie saw her shot and took it, hitting Gusto in the wing and tearing the fragile web of skin that kept him aloft. Gusto screeched in pain and attempted to climb again, but the wounded wing stopped him. As if sensing the challenge, Gusto turned to face the biplane and snapped at Millie, bringing the terrified acrobat within reach. Without hesitation, Millie grabbed the acrobat by her dress, and Cecilia sent the plane on a 720-degree twist into a power dive. Gusto's wings buckled, and Millie fired four shots into his chest. With a final squawk, Gusto released the acrobat and fell away dead, sending her and Millie sliding down the wing as the plane banked away. The acrobat's dress tore at the shoulder strap, and she tumbled off the edge of the wing, screaming. At the last second, Millie caught her by the wrist. Cecilia, she cried to her sister, get me a place to drop her, fast. Maxwell 1 to NYFD Air Rescue. Cecilia radioed. Mission accomplished. Are you ready to receive the rescued woman? Affirmative, Maxwell 1. 
crackled in reply. Proceed to the rescue zeppelins at the edge of the barricade. Millie saw the receiving team ahead, a pair of NYFD zeppelins with a safety net spread between them. Cecilia slowed and cut between them, and Millie gently dropped the acrobat into the net. A smile crossed her face. Millie looked back to see Miles Donovan, wide-eyed and quietly saying a Hail Mary, his knuckles white as a ghost, gripping the sides of his seat, and her smile became a heartfelt laugh. At the airfield, Millie's plane was surrounded by story seekers and reporters as she taxied into the hangar. That wasn't good. She'd promised Miles Donovan an exclusive for a fee. When she jumped down from the plane, a flashbulb went off to her left, held by some young hotshot photographer from another paper. Before Millie could address him, the crowd parted and a tall, gaunt man with sharp, unforgiving features and gray hair that matched his high-collared uniform well approached her. Miss Maxwell, the man in gray said, flashing a badge. I'm Commissioner Stevenson. I'm here on behalf of the Fear Act Compliance Office in Brooklyn. We have a matter to discuss with you. Am I under arrest? Millie asked, leaning on the plane with her arms crossed. Let's just say your participation is mandatory if you want to keep your pilot license, he replied. I have an urgent matter to discuss with you. The commissioner motioned toward a 29 Lincoln touring car parked near the end of the runway. Millie sighed and quietly walked to the car at the end of the runway and winced as the door slammed with deafening finality and sped off toward the city, at least in the mind of the driver. To Millie, who was used to 4G turns and 93-mile-an-hour power dives, the 30-minute drive seemed to take years, and it only gave her time to seethe in her frustration. The Fear Enforcement Commissioner was the bane of every freelance pilot and crop duster. Millie would just as soon spit in his eyes look at him, yet she rode quietly to his office when she should be picking up a fat paycheck for a hard day's work. She looked at her watch, 7.34. Millie cracked her knuckles. Something the matter? Commissioner Stevenson asked her. Just wanted to be back to the hangar in time for dinner, she replied distantly, watching people shuffling away from the closing bread lines under the shadow of great factory smokestacks that blotted out the sunset. The American dream, eh? He replied as shiny glass and steel gave way to gritty ironworks, and the car pulled into a dark, dirty industrial park. A hard day's work nets you a chicken dinner, maybe some apple pie, is that it? This is not that America, Miss Maxwell, he continued. Not for you, not for anybody. You may not see it from the clouds, but down here we're in love with this thing called progress, and she's a bitch of a mistress. Spare me the monologue, Millie snapped as the car came to a halt in front of a tarnished brick and iron office building. It was emblazoned with the winged hand in a stop gesture that was the emblem of the Fear Enforcement Corps in faded green copper. Like the rest of the world, the Art Deco exterior had seen better days and stood in sharp contrast to the elegant touring car. The commissioner escorted Millie through the cavernous lobby toward an elevator and past a receptionist who gave her a condescending, nice knowing you, smile. Millie expected it. She knew what this place was, a graveyard for pilots' careers. This was where men walked in aviators and walked out janitors, blacklisted from flight. Here, pilots were at the mercy of rule books written by men who'd never looked up from their desks, much less actually flown, and yet fancied themselves the gods of the skies. Yet as the aging elevator's gears droned on, Commissioner Stevenson kept his silence. No gloating, no lecturing, no triumphant smirk of victory that usually graced the face of a G-man about to bust another rogue pilot. And somehow, 
That bothered Millie even more as he led her through the door of his office. It was an office well suited to the man, a dark, cold box lit only by a desk lamp with a north-facing window that overlooked the industrial cesspool below. Christian Axworth sat near him, lighting a cigarette. He glanced at Millie's with a contempt usually reserved for hookers and deadbeats, then motioned to the commissioner, who strong-armed Millie into a seat in front of the desk. "'That was quite a performance today, Miss Maxwell,' Stevenson said, pacing around her with steely determination. "'And you only broke forty-four regulations during it. Impressive. A lesser pilot might have stopped at the five-year suspension threshold, but you, Miss Maxwell, have raised the bar for flagrant violation of the FEAR Act. Do you remember what the FEAR Act stands for?' Feds ending aerial recreation, she quipped mockingly. You know damn well what it stands for, the commissioner barked, striking his desk. The Federally Enforced Aerial Roadways Act of 1925. The law that created ordered skyways above our country, complete with the speed and altitude limits you delight in breaking for a career, and gave us absolute authority over them. No agency or office of government short of Congress has the power we do, so I suggest you modify your attitude, Miss Maxwell. As I said, I have you dead to rights on 44 violations from today's escapade alone. I'd very much like to tear up your license in front of you. However, I cannot. We, he paused, looking for the words, have need of a pilot of your skill. Millie sat silent and confused. We want to hire you as a contractor for an undercover operation, Miss Maxwell, Christian Axworth chimed in. What do the feds want a stunt pilot for? Millie asked guardedly. The commissioner emptied a manila envelope marked classified onto his desk, pouring out several grainy photos. It all started about three months ago, he began, with the theft of a half ton of asbestos from a warehouse in Tennessee. The thieves made their getaway in a Zeppelin. The FBI put a low priority on it then. I mean, what were they going to do, fireproof half of Nashville? But then there was a major break-in at the Knoxville Aerospace Laboratory. The thieves took this. He changed photos to show a small steel rocket mounted on what looked like a parachute harness. The Phaeton Mark III personal transport engine, Commissioner Stevenson said. It's a covert project developed for use on fear enforcement car interceptor airships to perform pilot arrests midair. How are the two connected? Millie asked. The asbestos was for fireproof clothing, a lot of it, he replied spreading out several grainy photos of a white-haired woman in an expensive evening dress and wearing pilot's goggles. She was firing a Tommy gun in midair with a Phaeton Mark III on her back. Other photos were of the large, gray Zeppelin from the previous heist with what appeared to be several other women flying toward it on rocket packs. At the sight of these, Christian Axworth's pulse seemed to quicken. These were taken by a Society Pages reporter last month, the commissioner told Millie. She calls herself Rocket Molly, head of an all-female organized crime outfit. Since this photo was taken, she and her gang have pulled 14 bank jobs and jewel heists, including robbing Mr. Axworth of the Rosencrunch diamond and muscled in on bootlegging rackets all over the Midwest. She hits hard and fast, too fast for the cops on the street. And while interstate aerial crime falls into fear enforcement core jurisdiction, my men can't open fire until they're 100 feet above the skyline, regulations and all. That's where you come in, Miss Maxwell, Christian told her. We need a pilot who can play by their rules, fly circles around the cops, and fight dirty. 
We want to hire you to infiltrate her gang, recover the Phaeton Mark III and my diamond, and bust their syndicate. The job pays 50000 Miss Maxwell. Plus, if you cooperate, Commissioner Stevenson has agreed to clear your record with the Fear Enforcement Corps. And if I don't? Millie said, her arms crossed defensively. Christian Axworth grabbed Millie by the wrist and dragged her to the window, then raised the blinds and forced her cheek to the glass. Take a good long look down there, she whispered. What do you see? Hungry smokestacks fed by starving workers whose lives are worth less than their work tools. This world is a machine, Miss Maxwell, one with too many small gears. Right now, I could toss you out this window and no one who matters would lose sleep over it. Poverty buys silence, but 50 grand, that screams. There are people out there, even movie stars, who will never see 50 grand in a lifetime. The feds are offering this because Rocket Molly hit the right man in the pocketbook. I want my diamond back, and I'm a man who gets results fast. You don't get this chance twice. Millie wasn't going for it. This wasn't her idea of a contract. The Fear Enforcement Corps were the enemy of everyone who flew freelance, including her, and she was in no mood to ink a deal with the devil. She twisted loose and faced Commissioner Stevenson. How long have I got to think this over? Millie asked. You think you're walking out of here without a contract? Christian sneered. Cool it, Axworth, the commissioner snapped back. This isn't your nightclub. Up here, we've got procedure to follow. Look, Miss Maxwell, he continued, this is a time-sensitive deal. You have until sunrise to sign the contract. If I haven't heard from you by then, the Fear Corps officers are coming to get your answer personally. Am I making myself clear? Crystal, Millie replied. Are you going to show me the door, or are we taking the window? Stepping off the elevator, Millie flashed the receptionist a big, satisfied grin. Millie knew she may not be a pilot past tomorrow, but tonight she'd beat the Reaper and was going to tell the world in no uncertain terms that she wasn't your average stunt pilot. Silently, she took the commissioner's calling card, then hailed a cab for the long, slow crawl back to the airfield. As the cab plugged onward, Millie pulled a faded photo from her pocket and examined it by the fleeting streetlights. It was her 16th birthday and the entire family leaned against her plane with a candlelit cake in her father's hands. She flipped it over to where her parents' obituary was taped and read for the millionth time. Mr. and Mrs. James Maxwell of Jefferson City, Missouri were killed on Saturday afternoon when a stunt in their air show failed, resulting in a fiery crash near Abilene, Kansas. They are survived by their four children, Millicent, Cecilia, Frank, and Henry. Millie knew that the pterodactyl chase that afternoon was twice as dangerous as the stunt that killed her parents, and it wasn't the first time she'd flown her siblings through hell and back for a paycheck. For five years, Millie had raised them from airfield to airfield, check to check. Whether as a crop duster, a mercenary, even a bootlegger, they had followed her across America's skyways without knowing where their next meal was coming from. They couldn't keep this up. Millie despised the thought of taking this contract, but 50,000, that was a game changer. This was a shot at a life for them, for a home. That word sounded so strange, home, like something out of a fairy tale. The cab stopped suddenly and snapped Millie back to reality. She put the photo away and walked to the hangar without tipping the driver. 
Inside, she found Cecilia and her brothers asleep around a camp stove with empty soup cans in their hands and a place set for her. An envelope marked Urgent was tucked under her can. Millie opened it to find a bill for a taxi zeppelin she'd shot down. The amount was slightly greater than the job paid. Millie stared at it for a moment, then walked to the hangar's payphone and called the commissioner, drumming her fingers on the glass until he answered. I'm in, she said in exhaustion. Chicago, June 23, 1931. Millie fidgeted in the slinky black evening dress and mink coat that Commissioner Stevenson had fitted her with. The whole look was so delicate and ritzy, so totally unlike her. She hated the itchy coat, and the holster that held her 45 to her garter chafed. Millie set her jaw and bore it. This was a contract, and she'd fulfill it. Millie focused her attention on the photo of Rocket Molly she'd been given. She took a moment to memorize her features, then torched it with the cigarette lighter in her purse. Millie threw it out the window of her cab as it arrived at her destination. The Hotel Elysium rose like a neon castle above the riffraff of the city, an icon of decadence wrapped in Grecian columns and faux ivory. Millie breezed past the velvet ropes like she owned the joint. She left the dorm in a hefty tip that thankfully was on the commissioner's dime, then headed straight for the VIP elevator. What floor, miss? The bellhop asked, his hand on the control lever and his eyes on Millie. Tartarus, she replied and flipped him $20. That ain't no place for a fine lady like you, the old man said with a sly smile and set the lever to sub-basement. I ain't no lady, Millie said with a wink, and the elevator dropped like a rock two floors into a short, dark hallway. The faint scent of tobacco permeated the hall and muffled jazz music played beyond a thick metal door. Millie rapped hard on the door and a view slot opened, revealing a pair of narrow eyes with a piercing, steely gaze. What's the password? The doorman growled. Grand architect, Millie answered. The door opened to reveal a cool, smoky speakeasy where liquor flowed like water, pooling into an ocean of vice. Millie tossed the mink coat at the check room with abandon and began scanning the room for Rocket Molly. She found her quickly enough, sitting at a booth to the right, sipping a martini with her trademark poker face and tinted flight goggles, and wearing the Rosenkrantz diamond. She stared disinterestedly over her drink, seemingly waiting for trouble. Now to get her attention, Millie thought. She searched for a moment, then elbowed in at a table where a hot poker game was going on between some of the toughest mugs in the joint. Someone get me a whiskey sour, Millie shouted with a snap of her fingers. Drinks are on me if you deal me in. The buy-in is 200 bucks, dollface, the dealer snapped. You ever play before? Millie thought back to the dozens of nights at airfields, where she'd taken drunken pilots for a week's pay a hand, just like Daddy taught her. I might have, Millie said coyly, and slammed 250 on the table. Jokers and twos are wild the dealer continued, and make that a round of whiskey sours on her. Half an hour later, dozens of shot glasses lay overturned on the table and six grand lay in front of Millie as her next-to-last opponent folded. The dealer eyed her suspiciously over the table. So did Rocket Molly from her booth. The dealer sat for a moment, drumming his fingers on his remaining cash and grinding his teeth. Millie stared him down, waiting for his response. I'm calling it. He slurred drunkenly. 
two pair of kings and a queen. You got a miracle woman? You could say that, Millie said calmly. She dropped her hand, revealing a royal flush with a joker in the king's place. The dealer roared in rage and flipped the table, seizing Millie by her dress and holding a knife to her throat, only to find a hypodermic needle in his own. It was held by Rocket Molly. Tetrodotoxin, Molly said coolly. Pufferfish extract. Don't even drop the knife. You'll be dead before it hits the floor. Just back away slowly and let her take her money. And you, she said to Millie, grab your dough and join me at my booth. Jackpot, Millie thought, struggling to hide her satisfaction as she followed Molly. Listen, honey, Molly told her as they sat down. Tartarus means hell. That's what you should be ready for in here, and by ready, I mean armed. Some of these guys have seen the inside of Alcatraz. They'd kill the devil himself for a dollar, and I'm no angel either. I didn't save your skin for free. You owe me 15% of your take from that table, or this needle gives you a kiss goodnight. You get me? Yes, Millie said and started counting her winnings. Decent take for 30 minutes work, wouldn't you say? Hardly, Molly replied coldly. It could have been twice that if you didn't wear your heart on your sleeve. Your face was practically a billboard of what was in your hand. Look at me. This is a poker face. You know what this look tells you? Almost nothing, except that you're in control. Master yourself, and you master your enemies. There's a writer you should look into. A Greek philosopher named Epictetus. He wrote a helpful little book called The Enchiridion. Enchiridion? Millie asked, trying not to lose count. Isn't that some kind of Mexican dish? Enchiridion, Molly repeated slowly. It means the handbook, and it's the Bible for Stoic philosophy. Never act on emotion. It's just another tool in your enemy's toolbox. That's the first thing I teach my girls. The thugs on the street, the loan sharks, the wise guys, even the cops, they all count on us ladies panicking like good girls whenever they pull a gun and bark orders. That's how they keep the women out of the big money rackets, convincing them they're not tough enough to take it. Molly held up the Rosencrantz diamond. You want to know how I got this? She asked Millie. By not panicking when a tough mug yelled, freeze. You know how I keep it in a joint like this? By not being afraid of anything these clowns can do to me. I know they can't break me. I know they know it, too. And knowing that is more satisfying than anything I'd ever feel. Whatever brings you joy, Millie said and counted off $900 to her. Are we square now? Not yet, Molly continued. I'm not the hooker with a heart of gold type. I run with the big boys and I don't rescue lost kittens. But you've got some claws, kitty cat. I saw you in the paper. You saved that broad from the dinosaur carnival. Millie Maxwell, isn't it? Yes, she replied. I'm in town looking for a job that pays. You like risking your neck for a couple of bucks? Molly asked her over a cocktail glass, showing no emotion. Safety is overrated, Millie replied. And if I'm going to get my skirt ruffled for a job, I'd rather it be the wind that did it than the boys at the airfield. Then let's talk business, Molly said, pocketing her cut of the poker money. If you're in here, then you know who I am, and you're obviously willing to break the law for a buck. I need a tough girl with flight experience for a job tomorrow. But not just any broad will do. Can you fly a zeppelin? In my sleep, Millie replied. How are you with motion sickness? Molly continued, finally letting her interest show. Average, Millie answered. How's your aim? Without a word, a shot rang out in Rocket Molly's direction. 
She moved to stab Millie with her needle until a familiar-looking knife fell to the table between them. Molly turned to see the poker dealer slumped to the floor behind her, clutching his inner thigh in agony. Millie stood up and closed her purse, revealing a singed hole in her dress where the muzzle of her forty-five smoked through the remains of her holster. "'Better than average,' Millie replied. Molly quickly wrote some directions on a napkin and slid it to Millie, then motioned for the door as the whole speakeasy gathered to catch a peep at her handiwork. "'Follow these and meet me tomorrow evening,' Molly told her. "'Come alone, kitty cat, or I use you for target practice. Now scram before your poker buddies sign up for a rematch.' Your tab's on me. Millie didn't stop to ask questions, just made for the door and skipped the coat check. She knew the commissioner would be furious at writing off the mink coat. Too bad, she thought. I'm just starting to enjoy this contract. Chicago, June 24, 1931. Millie arrived on time at Molly's meeting place, a small, abandoned airfield near the Lake Michigan waterfront. She felt nervous going in unarmed, but the commissioner had ordered it. Millie hoped he was right about it building trust with Rocket Molly. Cautiously, she opened the hangar doors. Millie entered and found the massive hangar dark, lit only by moonlight coming from the open skylight above. Below it were two simple wooden chairs, one of which held a Phaeton Mark III and the gang's typical black evening dress and gear. Rocket Molly sat on the other, wearing another rocket pack and lighting a cigarette. Right on time, kitty cat, Molly greeted Millie in a puff of smoke. You start tonight, get changed, she added, motioning to the dress on the chair. What, right here? Millie balked. I need to know you're unarmed and you need the dress to protect you from the vents on that thing, Molly told her, tapping her fingers on the Phaeton Mark III. Molly fell silent and exhaled a puff of smoke. This was not up for discussion. Reluctantly, Millie ditched her pilot's overalls and started putting the dress on. Though Millie couldn't tell through Molly's chromed goggles, she seemed to be paying closer attention to her than a mere weapons check. It left Millie with an uneasy feeling, but she knew the rocket pack would burn her in half without it. Millie knew better than to let on she knew that and dressed quickly. She was astonished at how disturbingly similar she and Molly now looked, her pilot's cap and goggles now the last shred of her identity. Now what? Millie asked. Put the rocket on, Molly told her. We're going on a practice flight. Millie strapped the Phaeton Mark III on, just like Molly showed her. Then Molly stood next to her and held her control watch next to Millie's. Molly tossed her cigarette and pulled Millie's goggles down over her eyes, then rested her hand on Millie's shoulder. Your right wrist is your rudder. Aim for the skylight on the count of three, Molly said. Millie was about to ask a question when Molly hit a button on both of their watches and the two dames rushed skyward at a dizzying pace zipping out the skylight into the night sky toward downtown Chicago. Millie cried out in a panic. The heat of the rocket's vents didn't burn through her clothing, but was still quite painful, like grabbing a white-hot kettle with thin oven mitts. It hurts, Molly yelled over the roar of their engines, but it won't burn you. If you have any hope of controlling this device, you must lose your fear of injury. Concentrate on the throttle and rudder, not the pain. Don't feel, Millie. Think. You have control, not the rocket. It can't hurt you if you don't feel the heat. Millie held back her tears and fought to concentrate on the sky ahead. She leaned and turned with Molly, focusing on the rudder, giving it all her attention. Gradually, the burning in her legs dulled to an electric blanket warmth, and the wind rushing past her cooled her. 
Millie regained her calm and control of the device, only to feel Molly let go of her shoulder, then her fingertips. Follow me, kitty cat! Molly yelled again. Millie spiraled out of control for a moment, then regained her equilibrium. She caught up to Molly, then followed her across the night sky in a dazzling display of loops, twists, and dives, darting between skyscrapers. Millie's heart soared. She hadn't felt so free since she was a teenager. Millie raced Molly in a spiral around a hotel on Michigan Avenue, and for a brief moment she thought she saw Molly smile as lights came on all over the building. Finally, Molly pulled alongside Millie and showed her how to land, setting them down on the observation deck of a building overlooking the canal. Millie leaned on the railing to catch her breath and cracked a smile as Molly joined her, looking down on the city. You're still wearing your heart on your sleeve, kitty cat, Molly said to her. I'm no mind reader, but I'd say that ride brought back memories. Like being a kid in the flying circus again, Millie exhaled. She thought for a moment. Why do you do it? Millie asked Molly. Refuse to feel, I mean. Molly leaned on the railing, the lights of the city glinting off her goggles. My name is Molly McCullough, she began. I was born to poor Irish parents in a neighborhood where Irish was the last thing you'd ever want to be. I was the first member of my family to learn to read, even got straight A's in chemistry. Fat lot of good it did me. The Irish labels all people needed to know about me. My job prospects were being a gun mall for some hotshot gangster, or being a prostitute. I tried my hand at both and got nothing but grief for my efforts. For years I didn't feel anything worth feeling. After a while I just stopped altogether. One day I realized I never really missed it either. That's when I found my real strength. Millie looked at Molly, hoping to see some glimpse of emotion, yet Molly showed none. Look at it, Millie, Molly continued. The whole magnificent city laid out like a buffet table. Nothing they've got down there can catch us. Anything you want, anything, is just a joy ride away. And not just Chicago. All the cities, all the kingdoms in the world I give to you. Just follow me. I don't understand, Millie replied. Molly rested her hand on Millie's with an unexpected tenderness that didn't match her cold demeanor. I know you judge me for my ways and for my refusal to feel, Molly said, but there are things I choose not to feel that this world would judge me more harshly for. Things I hoped you, of all people, might understand. We're not so different, are we, kitty cat? I don't know what you're looking for, Millie said, drawing her hand back slowly, but what you found is a pilot and nothing more. Then follow me back to base and come back tomorrow night, Molly said with a sigh. The job pays six grand, two thousand tonight, four more on completion. Millie smiled when she heard that. Something up, kitty cat? Molly asked. Nothing much, Millie replied. Just that now I can afford a taxi in New York. Chicago, June 25th, 1931. This is bull, Millie! Cecilia yelled at the top of her lungs, pacing the hangar with her arms crossed. You never take a job without us. This isn't like a usual contract, Millie replied and finished loading her 45 Mauser. These people are hardened killers and I have orders to come alone. I won't risk your lives, not anymore. Besides, we're supposed to be crop dusting in Springfield tomorrow. Contract to contract, Cecilia. We always keep our contracts, like Daddy taught us. But it's boring as sin. Millie, please. Daddy always told us this is not up for discussion, Cecilia. You've had more than enough excitement for one week. Now go get your plane gassed up and get ready to go tomorrow morning. Go and let me work just this once. 
You ain't the boss of me. I'm not a child anymore, Millie. Then stop acting like one, Cecilia. Now get to work and don't follow me. Millie listened to the hangar door slam and breathed out slowly. I know, Cecilia, she said to the door. I know why you're mad. I remember what Daddy told us. I really do. He told us never to fly alone. Bicycles, Millie thought. She would get them all bicycles when she got paid. That image, the whole family riding bikes together, stuck in Millie's mind as she steered the Zeppelin silently over Lake Michigan toward their target. Millie hadn't flown one in years, and compared to her nimble K-5 fleet, it handled like a battleship. Even its small cabin seemed like an airplane hangar, with the assortment of tools, instruments, and weapons hanging everywhere. Yet she piloted it with finesse, each turn of the wheel like an artist's brush stroke. Millie stared at her reflection in the instrument panel for a moment, her identity lost in the black, fireproof dress that marked her part of Molly's gang. Only her familiar pilot's cap reminded her of who she really was. Nervously, she fingered the transmitter ring Commissioner Stevenson had given her. Millie tapped out a ready message in Morse code on it, hoping he was on top of his game. Behind her, six women retrieved Tommy guns from a row of lockers on the back wall and strapped on their rocket packs. Molly buckled a utility belt as she gave them the plan like a general preparing for combat. Listen up, girls, Molly barked. I'm only saying this once. This is a simple job. Mr. Axworth is hosting a rooftop jewelry auction. This is like a state fair for precious stones, so focus on blue ribbon winners. Don't mug every broad in sight for pearls or cheap rocks. We're going for unset diamonds and shaking down the old money for their cufflinks. You get me, girls? We get you, they replied in unison. Good, Molly continued. We drop into the alley, then enter through the service elevator off the kitchen. Save your ammo for our entrance and covering our exit. Any problems on the elevator and I bust out this, Molly said, pulling her poison syringe from her utility belt. Come out blasting and clear the place in five minutes, tops. Everyone know their roles? Six stone-cold knockouts nodded yes and stepped to the ready line by the door. And you, Maxwell? She asked. Keep it below 100 feet above the skyline. Got it, Molly, Millie answered. Good, Molly said, snapping a pair of handcuffs around Millie's left wrist and cuffing her to the steering wheel of the Zeppelin. Just a precaution. Consider this your initiation into our sisterhood, kitty cat. Now, bottoms up, girls, she concluded, opening the cabin door and dropping into the night air. Molly fired her pack, and the other dames followed, slowing their descent into the alley and searing the pavement as they landed. Millie waited until they had disappeared into the building, then climbed to an altitude of 900 feet above the skyline as the commissioner had instructed her. She checked the Zeppelin's radar. The fear interceptor was already approaching from the starboard. Millie set to work on the cuffs. Nothing within arm's reach seemed to be useful, but then she saw the spare Phaeton Mark III on the back bench. Molly and her gang kept their poker faces as they stepped off the elevator and wasted the auctioneer in a hail of hot lead, and jewelry fell at their feet like candy at a parade. Once again, Christian Axworth bit his cigarette holder. This time, a devilish grin spread across his face, widening as he saw Rocket Molly wearing the Rosencrantz diamond, his diamond, for this heist. He snapped his fingers when the dames knelt to collect their loot, and the sound of guns cocking filled the air. Federal agents! Commissioner Stevenson yelled, 
pulling a browning submachine gun from under the serving cart where he was disguised as a waiter. A dozen other undercover agents followed his lead, training their guns on Molly and her gang. They were now caught in the spotlight of a circling autogyro bearing the emblem of the Fear Enforcement Corps. Molly cursed and rushed at Christian Axworth. She caught him by the arm, leveling her tommy gun at his jaw. Nobody move or I paint the place red, Molly shouted, losing her composure and inching toward the railing with him. Christian smiled. He almost had his diamond. He was so close he could taste it. Greed overcame Christian and he grabbed Molly's wrist and threw her over his shoulder. He reached for the diamond and missed. Molly kicked free as he lunged forward and her gang opened fire on the feds. Two dames took bullets in their packs, which exploded when they tried to take off and lit the roof up like a Christmas tree in hell. In the confusion, Molly led her remaining gang skyward only to have them riddled with bullets by the autogyro. They went down swinging, the whole gang shooting the autogyro to Swiss cheese until their guns clicked, dropping it after them in a ballet of blazing death and ice-cold beauty. Then no one gets it! Christian hissed under his breath, tapping out a Morse code message on a ring of his own while Molly sped off toward a zeppelin that tilted down at a 45-degree angle. Success, Millie thought as the Phaeton Mark III slid across the floor to her feet. She caught the shoulder strap with her foot and kicked it into place below the wheel. Millie aimed the vents up at the helm and switched on the control watch that was wired to it. The rocket blast quickly tore the steering wheel off the helm and knocked Millie over backward with it still cuffed to her wrist. Quickly, she adjusted the shoulder straps on the rocket pack and put it on. Millie barely had it rebuckled around the cuffed arm when Molly rocketed through the cabin door and cuffed Millie in the jaw with the butt of her gun. Molly slammed Millie against the cabin window, pinning her with the gun across her throat. How much did they pay you to send me up the river, kitty cat? Molly hissed, fighting for balance on the tilted floor, her emotionless front replaced by pure, unreasoning hate. Enough to buy me a lifeboat, Millie croaked. Molly wound up to strike her, but froze, her attention fixed on the starboard. Millie followed her spiteful gaze and saw the fear enforcement interceptor, a sleek, streamlined bomber bearing down on them. Its twin gunnels opened to reveal two bazooka-like cannons. Attention, Zeppelin! The helm radio crackled to life. You're in violation of the Fear Act and state law. Lethal force has been authorized. Before the radio had gone silent, the interceptor fired on them. Millie was airborne heartbeat after Molly, barely clearing the fireball that consumed the massive Zeppelin. Millie gave her rocket full throttle, racing after Molly across the night sky. Millie pulled alongside her and lashed out with the steering wheel, knocking Molly into a sideways spiral. Molly twisted out of control for blocks, then recovered and charged at Millie full throttle. Millie braced for impact, holding the steering wheel like a shield. Molly hit like a freight train and Millie screamed as three of her ribs cracked from the blow. If Molly was injured likewise, Millie couldn't tell. Even in anger, she remained sphinx-like as ever, not flinching, while she and Millie rushed straight at the ground. Molly rammed the steering wheel hard into Millie's chin, making it hard to fight and impossible to steer. Got nine lives, kitty cat? Molly yelled over the roar of the wind, her voice betraying the slightest hint of satisfaction. No, Millie winced as she grabbed Molly's utility belt with her free hand and pulled her hypodermic needle of tetrododoxin. But I still have claws, she cried, ramming the syringe deep into Molly's side. Without a word, Molly went limp, 
and her pulse stopped. Quickly, Millie snapped the Rosenkrantz diamond off her neck and flipped upward. Millie looked down to see Molly's body strike a 1929 Rolls-Royce, engulfing her in a Viking funeral pyre of burning chrome. Millie continued to rush upward for hundreds of feet before her rocket slowed and she regained control. For a moment, Millie saw through her pain that it was a beautiful, starry night that sparkled like tinsel. But her attention was grabbed by a blinking red alarm on her wristwatch control. Her rocket was out of fuel. Millie's engine sputtered and she froze. For a moment, she fell screaming only to land on the inclined wing of a biplane. With her free hand, she instinctively caught the wing walker's cable almost before she realized what had happened. The plane leveled out and Millie peered over the edge of the wing and into the eyes of her sister at the throttle and her brother Frank in the gunner's seat of her own plane. Damn it, Cecilia, she gasped for breath. I told you to stay out of this. You're always going on about how we're a family and all that crap, Millie, Cecilia said. Mom told us to always stay together. What did you expect us to do? What about the Springfield job, Cecilia? Millie asked her sister. We sent Henry. Besides, I'm the better pilot, Cecilia replied. A weak smile crossed Millie's face, followed by a wince of pain. She tapped out a message to the commissioner on her ring. Mission accomplished, she wrote. Meet me at the airfield with my check and a skeleton key. Cecilia taxied to a stop by the hangar, and Millie saw Commissioner Stevenson and Christian Axworth waiting by a rented limousine surrounded by an ambulance and several fear corps officers. Millie's siblings helped her down from the plane as they advanced. Splendid, you've recovered the Phaeton Mark III, the commissioner said as three fear officers pulled their guns on her. Surrender it immediately. Who ordered the intercepted of fire? Millie asked, handing over the rocket pack as he approached. I'm afraid Mr. Axworth was a bit overzealous about keeping his diamond out of the wrong hands. You did recover it without damage, right, Miss Maxwell? Overzealous, Millie said and held out the Rosenkrantz diamond. I almost died up there. Take your damn rock. Before she was done speaking, Christian swiped the Rosenkrantz diamond out of her hand and began to stroke it like a kitten. You snapped the chain, you clumsy bitch he muttered as he walked off. I'll take my 50 grand now, please, Millie said, eyeing the commissioner in disgust. How about that, he said, pulling Millie's contract out of his jacket and holding up his cigarette lighter. You didn't read the fine print, Miss Maxwell. You're a civilian contractor. Any collateral damage incurred by your involvement in this operation comes out of your payment, and you left me one hell of a cleanup job. A zeppelin and an autojo are down in the middle of the city, plus the damage to Mr. Axworth's diamond, and that's the short list. Fifty grand will barely cover it. He lit the contract on fire and dropped it at her feet. Forget getting paid. You're lucky I'm not billing you. Millie's teeth ground and her heart broke. If you get an attorney and file an appeal, he added, you might get a settlement in six to eight years, though I doubt you'll still be a pilot the day after you file it. The ambulance here will take you to St. Mary's. Mr. Axworth has graciously offered to pay 10% of your treatment expenses. Now, if you'll excuse us, we have a plane to catch. Lucky for you, it isn't yours. Good night, civilian, Commissioner Stevenson said and led the men out of the hangar. Millie looked at the ambulance crew, then dismissed them and turned to her siblings. Now what? Cecilia asked. Grab the toolbox and get this wheel off my wrist, Millie sighed. We join Henry and do what we always do, carry on.